Episode two. Yes, we finally have a name. The Great Mistake. No, take. <laughs> well, it should be Myth Takes, but yes. I made a mistake, it's okay. so it's Myth Take. Myth Take. Yes. And uh, what's the tag? Uh, fresh take on ancient myth. Okay. All yeah. right. Or there's no mistake in myth. Right. There's no mistake in myth. No. Because there's enough different That'd versions. That'd make a good shirt. <laughs> We're going to have to, um, you know, crowdfund that and see if we can get some shirts that says there is no myth taken. No mistake in myth. myth. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> no mistake in myth. Episode two. Yes. Good evening. So, good evening. Good morning. Good morning. Wherever you are, whatever yes. you're doing as you listen to us, yes. we hope that you enjoyed it. Um, thank you to everyone who listened to episode one and um, let us believe that we could do episode two. Yeah. So today then, we are having a look at Homer's Odyssey. The passage that we're going to be reading is from the Odyssey Book 10. Yes. And we're using the Richmond Lattimore translation, which is one of the, the standard uh, translations of the Odyssey. And we're looking at lines 467 to 486. Yes. So do you want to let our readers know where in the story this uh, happens? <clears throat> yeah. Just, like just you, a brief. Yeah, synopsis. like you mentioned earlier, you know, the Odyssey is a ring composition that pretty much starts... Uh, at the end and brings you back around to explain how you got where you are. And book 10 is structurally almost in the middle. Uh, this encounter with Circe uh, is in book 10. Then we have in book 11 the Nacusis or the Book of the Dead, and then Circe again in 12. So 12 is half of the Iliad, I mean half of the Odyssey. So that puts her at the turnaround point, uh, you know, the turning post of the narrative out of its farthest extent or reaches. If you look at the story, not only as um, just like a series of, of, of events, but um, in, a, in a linear format, this is the farthest out uh, that Odysseus is going to go. Well, the underworld is the farthest that Odysseus is going to go. And then he's going to come back, uh, his nostos, right? He's yeah. Going to come back. Yeah, so he is on his way home from Troy. He's uh, managed to upset the gods enough that it's going to wind up taking him him ten years. And this is his furthest point from civilization. Yeah, his furthest so. point from home. Yeah. <laughs> so I'll uh, I'll read our passage for you if you're following along. There for all our days until a year was completed, we sat there feasting on unlimited meat and sweet wine. But when it was the end of a year, and the months wasted away, and the seasons changed, and the long days were accomplished, then my eager companions called me aside and said to me, What ails you now? It is time to think about our own country. If truly it is ordained that you shall survive and come back to your strong-sounded house and to the land of your fathers. So they spoke, and the proud heart in me was persuaded. So for the whole length of the day until the sun setting, we sat there feasting on unlimited meat and sweet wine. But when the sun went down and the sacred darkness came over, they lay down to sleep all about the shadowy chambers. But I, mounting the surpassingly beautiful bed of Circe, clasped her by the knees and entreated her, and the goddess listened to me, and I spoke to her and addressed her in winged words. O oh, Circe, accomplish now the promise you gave, that you would see me on my way home. 
The spirit within me is urgent now, as also in the rest of my friends, who are wasting my heart away, lamenting around me when you are elsewhere. Mm -hmm. It's not particularly long, but that's Odyssey 10, 467 to 486. Mm -hmm. So what right. do you think? Well, this is a bit of an interesting passage to choose because it's not, a, it's not super action-packed. No, it's not. We don't see Odysseus getting up to any of his tricks, but I think this passage can tell us a fair bit about Odysseus and about his relationship with Circe as well. Yeah, it's, it's, a, good, it's a good passage to look at the two of them together, to look at Circe's effect on Odysseus, to look at um, how... Um, this sort of this situation we're expecting this hero to get back home and where is he uh, he's languishing in this sort of suspended state of animation in a sense on the island of Circe um, a sort of timeless fabled landscape so it's a it's a it's a really odd uh, situation that that Odysseus finds himself in you can see in the very first line it says there for all our days until a year had been completed well if he was in such a hurry to get home what's he doing hanging out there for a year uh, and this is something we see with with Odysseus when his story gets stopped when he runs the risk of not making it home it's these home-like environments it's, it's these places that mimic home um, mm -hmm. that really seem to trip him up because he's longing to get home to Penelope and he has no idea what's going on back home yeah uh, well, that's what we assume, right? Yes. That's what we want to believe, right? And we, 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 in, in the absence of any corroboration from the author, that's what we expect, right? This is a story about a return, a Nostos story, and we expect that Odysseus wants to get back to see the son that he um, basically doesn't know and uh, the wife that he has been away uh, for uh, at war for 10 years and another 10 years getting back. So right away when the when the author starts with this idea about that they've been languishing there for a year, I, I, you know, I'm just sort of like, it's shocking in a way. It's like, come on, Odysseus, you want to get going. Don't you, don't you want to get moving? What, they, what are they doing? You know, it's not like they're in pain or anything. They're partying really, right? So they're sat there feasting on unlimited unlimited meat and sweet wine. And the unlimited meat and sweet wine passage uh, phrase is used three times in the course of just this small section. And, um, and that to me is uh, quite fascinating. There's a lot to really be said about this notion of unlimited meat, sweet wine, and, and just the feasting in, in, in general, right? Because it's like Zinnia, right? The guest host relationship. And community. And Sharing community. food basically builds community. Mm -hmm. um, and Circe, um, she's divine as well. And um, I think that's probably part of her attraction. There's oh. a supernatural attraction yeah, uh, to her. Yeah, she's a beautiful goddess. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's there's a great deal of this feasting going on. And again, it's when you talk about this notion of feasting and eating together, it builds community and it, and it is also ex expressive of this idea of Xenia, which is a guest host relationship, a protocol in the ancient world, very important ritual. Uh, but uh, just on a more basic and more fundamental level, you know, the, the ancient world was a place where you are constantly confronted with the needs of your belly, to put it crudely, right? Where your next meal may come from. In the ancient world, and certainly in the 8th century uh, BCE, it was really an agrarian society, and you had to labor for your work, and there was no guarantee that you were going to have a great crop. And yeah, well, yeah, so it's just a great output. So 
The, so the unlimited me and yeah. sweet wine is really a paradise. Yeah, it's a paradise. It's a paradisal location that he finds himself in. She is she's providing for their bodily needs, which sets up the fact that you know men are more than mere bellies. That we do have a spiritual side, an emotional side, and we all we also have a corporeal side. So. And that's something that will come out a little bit further on as we look through the passage a little bit more. But the repetition of this idea of feasting together. And there are so many other metonymical connections between feasting and the nuptial comparison that I'll make up later. Why is it that humans that humans uh, come together to eat? You know, um, It's not just because they're hungry and they like to sit around and look at each other, but often we do in the context of usually some celebration, whether it be... Um, uh, you know, a birthday or a wedding. And then weddings are extremely important in the ancient world. They're extremely important in the context of the Odyssey. So, um, you know, here's a husband trying to get back to a wife. He finds himself on an island uh, with this goddess uh, in, in this context of feasting, feasting and unlimited meat and sweet wine, right? So she is being a very good host. I find it interesting here that it's not Odysseus getting his men ready to go. It's his men coming to him and saying, hey, Odysseus, yeah. um, <laughs> why don't we get going home? Like... Absolutely. And, and it begs the question, why? You know? Are you asking me or is that a rhetorical I don't, question? You know, I, I, you know, it, it's something that goes against your uh, perception of Odysseus as a survivor and as a hero, as a sort of a, uh, you know, a leader of men uh, and... Here's a chance where, you know, things are kind of going okay, but they've been there for a year. And Odysseus, and I love to use the word bewitched, uh, finds himself, there's really no spell, uh, you know, that, or superpower in the sense that Circe is, um, you know, inflicting on Odysseus. doesn't mention that. She, she tries to transform him, but thanks to the preparation of Hermes a little bit earlier on, her um, ability to transform him or beguile him is uh, foiled. So there's some other type of voodoo going on here, and it's more along the lines of her goddess effect or her bewitching sort of feminine allure. And this whole place is a sort of strange world where things are sort of timeless and, um, uh, and, and nameless in a way. Um, they, um, they're just, they're, it's kind of a hollow existence. On the surface, if you were to scan through this, you might look at it and say, oh, it'd be a great place. You get to hang out all day and you get to eat meat and drink wine. You get to hang out with a goddess and you get to hang out with Circe's maids who are nymphs and they're beautiful and immortal and all this stuff. But that becomes a type of uh, hell in a way, doesn't it? Become a type of prison in a way. Yeah, you know? it's like... It's, it's a hollow thing, right? Yeah. Because... It, it's like house arrest. <laughs> yeah, it, it is. But yeah, like your bodily needs are being met in a way, but... We're more than that, right? We yeah. have certain things that, that we require uh, beyond that and because we are, are, of course, spiritual beings. And this is an aspect of humanity that Circe really wouldn't understand. Um, but let's, let's read through the rest of the passage a little bit more, like the next line. But when it was the end of a year and the months wasted away and the seasons changed and the long days were accomplished, those words there are all words that talk about time being equated with life and vitality. So it's exactly, it's the wasting away, it's the, um, it's, it's the exact opposite of the plenty that was just presented in the first lines before that, with the wine, unlimited meat, and sweet mm -hmm. wine, and so on. But now they're languishing away, they're sort of like becoming, uh, I don't know, what's the word, like I was going to say emaciated or starved in a way, like there's something about it, because time is 
in a decline, right, their vitality. So it says they were accomplished, and then my eager companions called me aside and said to me, like, that's the part you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Then, right? Yeah. Then my, so after all this, all the, after all this great feasting and drinking of wine and eating of food and hanging out for a while, and a year has gone by, and then finally after the year, the men, right? Odysseus's men snap into it. Oh, yeah. enough of this. <laughs> yeah, right? And they're like, that's so fascinating to me because that's the source that gets, that's the motive source that gets the hero back on track. This is something that comes from outside. And Odysseus has internal drives and he's a driven guy. But if you look at the way that Homeric heroes move and are motivated, they're motivated by external forces. Yes. Right? Yeah. So, like, like you may have a Thumos, which he talks about here, like his spirit and his warrior's heart and where he has this, you know, how that works, right? Yeah. The dialogue they have. But it's always coming from the outside primarily, right? So yeah. And Let's we saw that, that with some other heroes that that we have read about, and we'll probably talk about at some point, like sure. Hector and Achilles, yes. and, and they're they're driven by things that are happening around them rather than inter, uh, internal, quite the same. Yeah, and and then when they do address those eternal drives, either they're chalked up to a divine force or this this idea of the thumos, which is that. And what does thumos mean? Spirit or okay. heart, right? And it allows in, for the Homeric hero. To have a sort of a dialogue with himself, right? Okay. So, yeah. And as a reader and as a listener of the poetry, it allows for you to have a privileged position, or not position, I suppose, a privileged position of being inside the hero's head for a moment, right? Because they're dialoguing with themselves. Yeah. It's not just like, you know, talking about actions, okay? So there's there's, there's that, that stuff to consider. So then my eager companions called me aside and said to me, and so it's not Odysseus, it's just his companions. And I like the, the words. And, and a lot of times in close readings, you'll see, and we've encountered this in, in the past, people will talk about how, their perception of it. And they'll just say, well, he went and did this, and he said this to this guy. But those words that are included in there and picked up on by our translator, like the eagerness of his companions, they're not just, they don't just one day say, oh, it's time to go. They're eager to do it. They decide, and then they get about doing it immediately. And then the next line says, called me aside and said to me. Now, what does that imply? Right? I asked my students that. And, and they, they looked at me and said, well, I'm not sure what you're getting at. I said, well, if it's a deliberate choice by the author, and, I, and I'll say this again a bunch of times, I know that Homer's not an author. But we're reading it written down, and we're and there has been so many changes—not changes, but choices made in translation. So when we analyze it, we analyze it with the tools of literary criticism. So this is one of the things that come to mind. And when I see that put that choice made, called me aside and said to me, what does that imply as far as how you're supposed to picture it in your head? You know, what what does what does that say to you? They call a person aside. That Odysseus is in a little bit of trouble. <laughs> That's what I think. He's in a little bit of trouble. They're not happy. It's a yeah. it's a reprimand. It's, yeah. it's um, I like that. He's it's, not being called out in front of everybody, though. No, but that's, I and think that's the key point. he's not in front of Circe. That's the key point, right? So when you call someone aside, you're making a deliberate choice. It's respectful. About, about presenting the information in private, right? Yes. So the men pull him aside and speak to him, right? And you could you know, speak a great deal about that choice right then and there, considering audiences and context. Are they doing it to 
honor Odysseus? Are they doing it to honor Circe? Are they doing it to to have a private audience, which is my perception of it, to have a private audience man to man mm-hmm. in the absence of this feminine gaze, in the absence yeah. of the bewitching power of Circe to say, hey, dude, right? Yeah. It's time to go home, right? And uh, that's kind of what they get at. But the next little bit is, you know, my eager companions called inside and said to me, now you get the direct address. What do they say? Uh, now, your translation says, what ails you now, yeah. right? Okay, so what ails you now? Um, it is time to think about our own country, right? And then there's a pause there. I just want to stop with that. Now, I don't know what you'll say, right? But if someone came up to you and, and approached you and said, what ails you now? What do you, how were you supposed to take that? What does that mean? Like what are they? What are they trying to communicate? Is he sick somehow? Ah, right. Well, they can tell that there's something. There's something about him that's not quite himself. That's how I would take it. It's like somebody coming up to you and say, "Hey, what's wrong today?" Yeah, what's wrong? And you might yeah. not even really be in tune enough to realize yeah. that it's something's like, hey. wrong. But you're sending out a vibe that this isn't where exactly. I want to be. It's not what I really want to be doing. Whether right. or not he's conscious of it. Whether or not he's conscious of it, but it, what's important is that his men are. And and they're like, you're not yourself. You're acting weird, right? Or um, they're saying things like, because you, well, I said, is he sick? You know, you know it's, it, people are a little off when they're sick, too. You know, it's mm-hmm. like, oh, I had a chest cold. Sorry for being such a bastard for three days, but I didn't know I was really that sick. People can kind of tell when you're really not acting yourself, right? So Odysseus's men know Odysseus. They know, mm-hmm. and I will say an Odysseus. They know the Odysseus of Ithaca. They know the Odysseus that they went to war with. They know the Odysseus that they, you know, fought at Troy with and sailed with and, and so this, on. And right? this behavior, this is out of character. Right. Out of character right. for him. Somewhat. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, and then the reason why I asked about what the translations that you had, because I, I looked at a couple other translations around this line too, because it Translation is an is uh, an art, an art, right? Yeah. And um, the translator makes choices. And um, Lattimore, this is Lattimore, chose mm-hmm. to say, "What ails you now?" I looked up in the, the Kovacs one, mm-hmm. and the Kova, in Kovacs they say, "Strange man," right? Oh, so yeah, um, they come up to him, and and when you say "strange man," that is they don't recognize this man, right? Ah. So it's not like. You're not the Odysseus I know. They're like, you're, I don't even know who you are. You know, like, with, with, like, you know, kids will talk like, who are you, bro? You know, like, that's <laughs> like, what? You know, like that. They don't even know what, what that guy is, right? And when you look in the original Greek on that particular line, the word daimonion is used. And daimonion can mean a number of things, but it primarily means either someone who is under divine influence or uh, some other sort of supernatural power. Right. Uh, And so, again, this kind of, to me, speaks a little bit about the sort of bewitching quality. Right. This feminine bewitching quality of of Cersei. She's not, you know, over there, you know, sticking pins in a voodoo doll or nothing. But you're in her house. You're in her you're you're in close proximity to her. You're being fed by her. You're on her island. There's something of her rubbing off on you. You're in the midst of a feminine cosmos. Right. And in, in, in him and his men are. They are strangers in a strange land, yeah. right? 
And well, and it's not just the feminine and masculine; it's that divine and mortal thing too. Sure, that's absolutely yeah. Because this is a yeah, yeah, I I agree with that totally. Because it is a supernatural type of landscape, right? The the types of things that Cersei can do. Uh, and her relationship with the natural world. You know, she has all those lions and bears and tigers, oh my, roaming around her house, right? And, yeah, and, and having just transformed Odysseus's men and then, and then again transformed them back into younger, more beautiful versions of themselves, right, is a miraculous thing. Yeah, that's thing. important to note. They, yeah. they, get, they get a pretty good deal out of yeah, that. Yeah, they, they get a good deal out of it, right? Of course, they're, they're, they're first lured in and then they're transformed and thrown into pens. But Odysseus does come and save them like the heroes of last week when we talked about the Soter hero, the rescuer coming yeah. in, right? Uh, and, and Odysseus does. And you can read about that before that in book, uh, book earlier on in book nine. But um, let's look, uh, keep moving on, right? So uh, what ails you now, they ask him. Uh, it is time to think about our own country. And I love that line, right? If truly it is ordained or word, it would be fated. If it's fated that you're that you shall survive and come back to your strong-sounded house into the land of your fathers. So those are the direct words of Odysseus's men, right? Mm-hmm. There's a lot in there. There's a lot of irony, too, because yeah. um, the men don't know this, but we certainly know that mm-hmm. Odysseus is the only one who's going to make it back to Ithaca. Yeah, I know. He's going to lose everybody along the way. Yeah. So that's that's what I think of when 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 I read that, because it's fated it's for Odysseus to yeah. come back, but his men don't realize that yeah. they're not going to come back. Yeah, they're the ones who get him moving. Yes. Right? Yeah, that, that, is, that is quite odd. You know, and they do say that it, it's time. Once again, time, going back a few lines, talking about the wasting of time, mm-hmm. the languishing of time, time being relinked, uh, um, linked to vitality. So it's time. So this puts a time stamp on things. Like, it's now time to get moving. Before, they weren't moving. Before, they were just bleh, right? Mm-hmm. But now, the narrative becomes compressed. It's, we put a check mark in the margin and say, okay, things are moving forward, right? And what do they want to think about? It's time, not only to get moving, but to think, right? Use your noggin, right? Time to think about our own country, it says, right? And I love that. What's a, what is their own country? Like, if you were just going to say, if those guys, what do you think they're thinking about when they say that? I think they're thinking about their homes what back in Ithaca. Ithaca. And their, yeah, in yeah. Ithaca and yeah. their family and maybe their children. Sure. And, yeah. I mean. And Helos, maybe. Yeah. If you're going to even pull it back one thing. Right? Because they've been gone. Like, they were gone for 10 years of the Trojan War. Right. And now this is year nine on his way home. Like, this is fairly close to yeah. the end of his adventures home. Yeah. Um, so they've been gone for, like, almost two decades. Oh, yeah. Been a long so, time. Yeah. Yeah. So well, home is probably even, I wonder if it's even getting to be a bit of a fuzzy concept yeah, for everybody. I've got the years all jumbled around. Yeah. And it's not entirely important. I know he spent seven years with Calypso. He's only a year here with Cersei. You know, that's half of the journey back right then and there. He's going to yeah. hook up with the Phaeacians. Zeus is going to thunderbolt him after Helios's island and the Phaeacians, Phaeacians finally get him back to Ithaca. So you yeah. can you can Google the... the uh, you know, the Odyssean uh, the yeah. ring composition in order to figure out what happens in that narrative. But, but the important thing here is that, or, or the point that, that I was trying to make there, is, is just that we've got this long amount of time that they've they've been yeah. away from they've home. They've been away for a long time. And I kind of wonder if home for them isn't almost as dreamlike, like just kind of this dreamlike, fuzzy concept, just because it's sure. been so long, right? Sure, we, t- we tend to romanticize memory, right? And we... we, uh, we um, we love to romanticize and look at things with a nostalgia 
you know, the rose-colored glasses of our past, right? So these guys, when they're talking about that, and I, and I like this idea because not only is it Ithaca, right? Not only could it be considered Hilas, but these men, Odysseus's men, who recognize Odysseus, but don't know this man, right? In the way that we were mm -hmm. speaking about before want to get this man going and they want to get him back to a place that they as men recognize nice, yeah right so let's get out of this woman's place and let's go to the man's place mm -hmm. right and these are the men speaking to odysseus mm -hmm. right because this this place here is is not it's not a right place for us right no like it is it because it, it, then it says if it's truly ordained that you shall survive and we know odysseus is a survivor that's one of his many kind of epithets, right? He's not only his most woebegone traveler and cursed and all this, but he's also a survivor, right? And then it says, and come back to your... And this is the way the men frame it, right? They say, now it's time to think about going back to my own country. And they said, and come back, that's what you need to do, Odysseus. You need to come back to your strong-sounded house and to the land of your fathers, right? Mm -hmm. So the masculine territory. All masculine, yes. right? It's like, get out of this that you're in and come back to the land of your father. Think of Laertes or whatever, right? Or even just the more generic idea and come back to it. And even I, I detect slightly in there, this is a, a curious phrase, but it says come back to your strong sounded house, right? So mm -hmm. that's the men, right? Mm -hmm. So what do you think the men are trying to communicate to Odysseus by saying that? They're tr they're perhaps suggesting that he's becoming too feminized. That it, there's maybe some in that, that whole section. Yeah. But my my question really is that with that word, the strong sounded house, what is emblematic of a strong sounded house in ancient Greek culture? And it doesn't fall over. No. <laughs> Not well built. Right? Feminine. Feminine. Yes. The okay. center of the house. Odysseus' house is Penelope. So the yes. men know. Right. Gotcha. The okay. men are saying, leave this place. Leave this woman's place. Mm -hmm. This ain't your place. This ain't your woman. Go yes. back to your house. Go back to your wife. That is the way things should be. Ta da! <laughs> right? Right? That's, that's what they're saying to you. You're on the vault tonight. Yeah. Okay, I'm not quite keeping up here, that's but anyway. <laughs> then back to the land of their fathers, right? The okay. men knew how to frame it so as to get him to go because he wasn't going to go anywhere. That's the problem. He could have stayed there forever. Right, mm -hmm. that's the that was well, the type of thing. And how many it's like the existential threat to he, a guy like Odysseus? He spent something like seven years with Calypso, right? Oh man, same kind of situation. Night, poor guy, all that, you know, yeah. Longing for Penelope, yeah, crying at the staring off into the. But distance. again, it was a place that he didn't belong, and, and as you were saying yeah, earlier, it doesn't just, fulfill all of those yeah human needs, human needs, heroic needs. Chaos, masculine, masculine yeah. stuff. Yeah, you know, it's it's kind of an empty existence, right? So get back to your strong, but build it house. Your strong, sounded house. I mean, so um, what, what what do we got in there? Okay, what's uh, the next so, line? So they spoke, and the proud heart in me was persuaded. Oh, there, so, well, you, we know that, yeah. right? So when we see proud heart, what's the Greek word? Thumos, <laughs> right? So we see the thumos, right? The heart, the spirit. It it has different uh, manifestations, but that's you know. Something mm -hmm. that the ancients believed. Um, so they spoke, and the, and the proud heart in me was persuaded. He was persuaded. Yes. You see, so what does that tell you? That 
he listened English, to them, yeah, and he took on board what right. they had to say, and he came around to their way of thinking. Right, so there, he was convinced. Yes, right. He needed convincing. Yes. So it's not like, oh yeah, cool, great guys, let's go. I, oh, I never thought of that. Thanks for really, you know, tuning me into that. No, he actually needed to be convinced, and mm -hmm. they, they, you get that in there. It says his proud heart in me was persuaded. Wow. Okay. Great. So what do we got next? So for the whole length of the day, so again, that oh, whole is. time yep. going on, yep. they sat feasting unlimited meat, yeah. sweet wine. Yeah, sweet wine. Yeah. Right. Um, um, and I find this part interesting mm -hmm. because Odysseus waits for his moment with Circe. He doesn't go running off to her right away. That's a good point. And say, hey, Circe, guess what? We have to go. Because yeah. he, needs, he needs something from her. He needs information he from sure, her he, he about does. what he's supposed to do next and how things are supposed to go. Um, we know that she's going to give him information about going to the underworld and getting the information that he needs yes. um, from from the dead uh, prophet Tiresias. Mm -hmm. um, but so so he waits at, um, until everybody's asleep, and then he sneaks into her bed, her very her surpassingly beautiful bed. Yeah, and as soon as you see that, it's on a, a metonymical connection that connects it through to another famous bed that will come become important in the story. And that, for those of you who are not familiar with the Odyssey, that is his own bed mm -hmm. back in Ithaca right. with Penelope. Which is beautiful as well. And yes. which a rather loyal yes. and faithful wife sleeps in at this and which very cannot moment. Be moved. Yeah, and which yeah. cannot be moved. Yes. Okay, because yeah. he carved it in place. Yes. Um, he clasps her by the knees and entreated her. And this is something that I think is really easy to oh, miss. Yeah, this clasping about? by the knees. So this is the ritual of supplication. Mm. And supplication, and I use the word ritual deliberately because it is, uh, it, it, it has what we would think of as religious overtones. Yeah. Um, it's a, a ritual overseen by Zeus. Yep. When you're in an oral culture, and actually I think we talked about this a bit with Medea and, and Oaths, when you're in an oral culture, your word really has to be your bond. And yeah. so when you approach someone to supplicate them, you grasp them by the knees and you entreat them, beg them yeah. to help you out. And they are supposed to... Listen. Oblige. Yeah, yeah. Um, because right. a, this is not yeah. something that you do easily because right. it's incredibly humbling and shameful, shameful and demoralizing yeah. to the person who has to do it. Absolutely. So the person who is being uh, supplicated yeah. but should have the respect for Zeus to grant you what it is that you're asking. Yeah, you, they from. acknowledge that you've approached them from a position of weakness, asking for a favor. And I believe the origin of the ritual is actually a battlefield practice okay. right? about sparing, sparing people's lives, right? Especially those who uh, you've captured in combat, right? Uh, and you can ask for um, a boon, right? Don't, yeah. don't kill me, right? Or yeah. spare my child. And you, you know, you clasp them by the knees and you, you like Thetis, reach up with yes. your hand and supplicate the chin and you raise your chin to expose your neck because you've been... You are, you're giving the power of life and death over uh, and to the person who you're asking for. The way that I read this, um, this is actually, I think, a powerful image because here we have a man, mm -hmm. a male, supplicating a female. Yeah. 
Um, now, a female mortal would be beneath him in society, but we are. I wouldn't but, put it past a guy like Odysseus. <laughs> no, he is he is a trickster, mm-hmm. but he rec- he recognizes her as a goddess and yeah. he recognizes her divinity. And he goes on to say, "And the goddess listened to me, and I yeah. spoke to her and addressed her in winged words." Yeah, it's a it's another feather in the cap for our hero Odysseus too, right? Because uh, you know he he gets a favor. Right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and, and he becomes different. He becomes transformed by the knowledge that Circe gives back to him. And, you know, to backtrack slightly and to say, you know, when after he had been persuaded and they had hung out, they continued to stay inside the house until the sun sets. And it's, it's, it's in the setting, right? The sun setting. Uh, and, when they, and they had a, 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 um, a night meal, a night dinner, right? They sat there feasting again on limited sweet, uh, limited meat and sweet wine, right? And then says, "But when the sun, but when the sun goes down and the sacred darkness came over, they lay down and sleep, all about the shadowy chambers, right?" Mm-hmm. Now, just before the going to the bed and asking for the supplication, that scene's in there, and I find that's a great transition scene for what we're about to get into and what we will actually get it's into book eleven. We'll get into Book 11, right? The supernatural darkness, right? Yes. The idea that sleep is equated with death, right? Mm-hmm. Hypnos and Thanatos. The men sleep while Odysseus is awake, and he goes into Odysseus's. I mean, he goes into Circe's chamber and asks her for this, for this um, favor, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so you you get all those 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 notions of the occult knowledge that Circe possesses. Um, uh, you know, simply the you know, knowledge of the unseen, right? Literally a metaphor for darkness. Would you say then that this scene here is a sort of um, a sort of type of what he's going to do next, well, right? I Where he's yeah. going to because he's going to go into the underworld and he's going to be asking information of the dead. Yeah. So that this is this is a. I yeah. think type is the right word, right? Um, or uh, foreshadowing. Like, yeah. Of what of well, what sure. is going to come next? It definitely makes you think about it, right? You know, the, the uh, these connections are, are are another aspect of, of metonym, right? And they're connected by association, right? So if you're talking about darkness and sleeping, and then in the next book, it's all about going into the land of the dead, the, the edge of light and the edge mm-hmm. of life. You know, they it makes sense, and it's part of the genius of Homer. And it's all all in there for you you to see, right? And uh, you know, her occult knowledge is basically knowledge of the hidden. Mm-hmm. Right? Yes, she, because that's what occult refers to. It's not refers to not not necessarily evil, but just the hidden. Yeah, it's the things that are unseen, yeah. right? So um, when you're talking about shadowy chambers and sacred darkness, that all makes sense. Um, but I mounting the surprisingly surpassingly beautiful bed of Circe. Um, clasped her by the knees and entreated her, and the goddess listened to me, and I spoke to her and addressed her in winged words. It's very striking. I don't know what 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 are the sort of things there that come to mind for you while I look at a couple of this other other lines. Uh, well, the winged words. Um, Odysseus, we know, is somebody who is has his wits about him and is quite cunning and has a way with words. Um, we see that earlier in the Odyssey with the Cyclops episode, where he um, is very careful with his speech and what he says to the Cyclops. So here he's using what you could think of as his sort of superpower, his hero power, um, words and language uh, to help convince 
yeah. uh, Circe that it's time to let the man go. It's time. It's time for her to to fulfill her uh, her part of the bargain and let them go on their way. Yeah, I think so too. Because they're speakers of words and they're doers of deeds. And Odysseus is no slouch in the speakers of words capacity. No, or in the doer of deeds. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, just a different type of deed. Exactly. He's a jack of all trades and a master of all trades. Yeah. So he says to Circe, O Circe, accomplish now the promise you gave that you would see me on my way home. The spirit within me is urgent now. So we've gone from the beginning of this passage Mm -hmm. where he's just languishing around, not really noticing or caring about the passing Mm -hmm. of time. And And now he's like, he's just chomping at the bit to get going and he's he's urgent to to get going. Mm and he says, as also in the rest of my friends who are wasting my heart away, lamenting around me when you are elsewhere. Right. So everybody needs to be, needs to get going at this point. Yeah. Um, but they've been hiding it from Circe. They're trying to be the good guests. They've, they've had enough of their vacation and they're ready to go home, but they're still trying to be the good guests. Yeah. And I think too, that truthfully, Odysseus is acknowledging the effect that the men are having on him now for the first mm-hmm. time. Whereas before he was not, he was sort of anesthetized and... That's a Greek word, right? Anesthesia, yep. right? And and this is the lack of sensation, right? Uh, the lack of sensation to pleasure, the lack of sensation to pain. Odysseus was sort of uh, uh, anesthetized in this environment, right? There are other things sort of going on too to distract him, and it's all part of that sort of general bewitching like quality that Circe has. And now that he's been sort of persuaded, remember we really mm-hmm. got into that, mm-hmm. and awakened, by his men, right, these men speaking to other men, and, and, and he has to use his capacity for speech, right, in order to get what he wants. And it's effective. And, you know, Cersei's no villain. Right? No, I, no, I, I, certainly not. I don't think that, well, people could say that, right? Like, you, you get people that, you know, get some pretty wild readings out of this stuff, too, sometimes. Sort of like, oh, the witch Cersei, and she, she turned her men to pigs, and then all of a sudden, then, you know, like, I don't know. You know what we'll I mean, do more right? on Circe. Yeah, we'll, you know what I mean. But yeah. when Odysseus says it, it's, it's time to go, and she's she's pretty straight about. It. She says, "Okay, I don't want to keep you here against your will, mm-hmm. right?" Like, yeah, she's she's it's not she a, recognizes that. Yeah, there, it's whereas it's, with Calypso, Calypso um, earlier, who's a a nymph, I guess we call her. She's a goddess um, too. They goddess, call her goddess, yeah. yeah. Um, she does keep Odysseus almost against his will for, for a long time there. Whereas Circe is, is okay. He doesn't last as long. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. You ready to go? Yeah. Well then, you know, again, we got Hermes, we get the intervention of Hermes on both of these, right? You have your scenes with the godly councils and so on. Hermes pops into this one and and helps his, what would that be? Grandson, great grandson, Odysseus. He's related. Yeah. Yeah. And to get back onto the path again, these two men, you know, he pops back down on Circe's Island, this sort of like mythological landscape. And says, oh, here's what you got to do, great-grandson, and not to be bewitched by that woman. And we can talk about all that stuff. Yeah. But we're not going to bother with that. We will someday. Just yeah. not today. Yeah. So, oh, Cersei, accomplish now the promise you gave me. Right? And I like that promise. You gave me a promise in the past. She had said this before, that if he should ask, right, um, then I will release you. Right? Um, and the, the idea of the clasping of knees is part of the supplication scene. Mm-hmm. that we just had earlier, but it also links back to 325, earlier on in the book, when it was Circe clasping the knees of Odysseus. Mm, oh, yes. don't kill me, right? Yes. Because Her- Hermes had said, draw out your sword and come at her like you're going to kill her, right? 
And, and he's like, all right, sure. And that's how she reacted to that threat, yes. right? She dropped to the ground and, and she said, do you remember what she said? Do you remember what she said? How she responded I to that? I don't remember it exactly, but she, she, she begs him yeah, not to, not to kill her. Yeah, don't, yeah. oh, don't kill me, right? And then she says to him, you must be Odysseus. Yes. Remember that? Yes. Right? Because she's, she's heard of him she's and she knows he's coming. Word gets around. Yeah. See, so this goes back to something I was saying a little bit earlier that we get a little sense of in this passage is the idea of identity, right? Where the men don't recognize Odysseus. They recognize an Odysseus, Odysseus that they know from Ithaca. But this man is not the same man, and they want that old man back. They want that other friend back. They want that other, you know, philoi or whatever, whatever term. And even in this sense, too, Medea, I mean Medea, <laughs> Circe knows an Odysseus, right? Yes, yes. So she doesn't know Odysseus. She knows an Odysseus. You must be the Odysseus, the one that the prophets told me about, the one that my occult knowledge told me about, the one that the gods warned me about, whatever it may have been, right? You must be him. Okay, so where are we? Oh, seriously, accomplish now the promise you gave that you would see me on my way home. Funny how he doesn't mention his men there, right? Nope. <laughs> um, that you see on my way home to the Nostos, the return, right? The Thumos, the spirit within me, is urgent now. Oh, it wasn't before, but it is now, thanks to the persuasion of my men. Well, I'm not crediting at this particular point, or maybe I am, as also uh, in the rest of my friends, my Philoi. And you notice how the translator changed it? The beginning, they were comrades, and then later on, they become Philoi, they become friends. Ah. There's a slight shift in the way that they're described, right? It's like, yeah. at the beginning, they're just like these Joes that I hang around with, that look like younger, more handsome versions of the guys that I used to sail with. <laughs> but now that they, they, you know, they've hit me to this information... I'm, I'm including them in, in, in the ranks of my philoi, right? And, and on also the rest of my philoi who are wasting my heart away, lamenting around me, ah, they cry a lot, when you are elsewhere. When you are elsewhere. It's like, seriously, I don't mean to offend you, but when you're here, they put on a smile and they put on a brave front. But when you're away, they constantly cry and constantly say, it's time to go back home, right? Mm -hmm. So their crying is affecting him. There's one thing, too, I wanted to add, too, about the men's transformation into pigs. And then okay. a lot of people ask about, you know, why pigs? And you've got a 100 different people, and you'll get a 100 different answers. So here's your 101, right? <laughs> okay. So in this particular spot, I'll say, in the context of this passage and the way we've been talking about this idea of the transformative effect of the men and so on, they're turned into pigs. It reinforces the connection right, um, that uh, between appetite and the spirit, right, pigs are perceived as being primarily bellies, driven by appetite, right, you feed them, that's what you do, right, mm -hmm. and they eat, they consume, right, and that passage, again, with the men's transformation, subsequent retransformation, establishes that connection between the men and animals, and between appetite, right, as bellies. Um, so this hollow paradise is being constructed in this passage. But there are also other consumers in this story that we'll meet that are acting like a parasite on another house. So in that, they're the suitors themselves, right? Back in Ithaca. Yes. So in this, with this in mind, those men, right? With, uh, Odysseus's men become the stand-ins, the parallels to the suitors back in Ithaca. Okay. And Odysseus becomes the king that successfully woos Penelope's hand. And Circe becomes a stand-in for Penelope. So this whole scene could be seen as uh, a, a kind of weird version, sure. an alternate version of what could be going on right now in Ithaca. All right. All right. 
So I think it's time now for a little bit of listener mail. Oh, and more mugs. Yeah, yeah. I apologize for the cat. We'll have to. No, no. Do this something. is the cat episode. The cat episode. We're gonna get her on here for an encore. She's okay. got to have a nap. Okay. So first off, we do want to thank all of our special um, test listeners. Last episode, we got some great feedback um, on Twitter. DIY Garage Band uh, offered us some technical advice, and we were actually using a shiny new uh, microphone. It's orange. It is bright orange. If there's ever like a thick fog in here, we will still be able to bring you this podcast. It's very cute. Um, user at Julia Forsyth. Uh, offered us some musical advice, and we now have our intro and outro music. Less of... flashy, but also less controversial. Yes, and definitely, definitely legal. <laughs> sure, absolutely. We want to set a good example um, when it comes to copyright. For now. For now, anyway. <laughs> um, user Avon Sarah, Twitter user, um, sent me a couple of good tweets in, in reaction to our, our Medea episode there. Mm-hmm. She, she said she found herself wanting to argue with us, oh, good. Yeah. which is a very good sign that she's engaged. Oh. And we know that feeling well when we're uh, marking student papers and we want to start like discussing their ideas that oh, God, you get engaged in it. Yeah. She says that uh, she's got some views yeah. on Medea and wanted to jump into the conversation. She points out that Jason does say he's looking out for the kids and that he may actually believe it himself. And, uh, he and may. He, I agree. He may, yeah. yeah. And the extent to which Euripides expects his audience to sympathize with, with Medea. So thank you for your thoughts on that. And um, we did have one tiny correction uh, to make. Uh, the date for Euripides and Medea was? 1971. Um, 431. Oh, sorry. I just had 431 BCE. Okay, yeah. 431 BCE, of course. Yeah, yeah. and the Peloponnesian War started 431 to 404 BCE. Nobody picked up on that, so that was our little test that nobody passed. So, Um, the first few callers at 688-55. See if you can find the mistakes in this episode and let us know. But at any rate, thank you very much for listening. We are in the process of getting up on iTunes. We're hosted now on Podbean. Um, as well, so you can subscribe to our RSS feed there. So, so I am at Darren Sundstrom on Twitter. And I am at Ines Allison on Twitter. And this has been Myth Take, a fresh take on ancient. Have a good night.